It's The Rest Is History. Hello. I am Frank Skinner and welcome to The Rest Is History. Often when you're discussing some historical fact in a pub, someone gets out their smartphone and gives you the correct answer. That's fine, but I don't like it when they're too quick on the draw. I like to have a bit of time to explore the highways and byways of my own labyrinthine ignorance. For example, I once spent a very happy couple of hours debating whether or not the horse whisperer is a pawn. That's how this show works. My t- Think about it. My two guests and I have a little debate, and then we have a human smartphone to put us right in the form of historian in residence, Dr. Kate Williams. So, Dr. K, who's sitting at my barroom table this week? Tonight, Frank, we've got two magnificent guests, comedians David Mitchell and Steve Hall. So, um, guys, what would you say were your uh, historical credentials? I got an A at History A level. That's Um, brilliant. And uh, I wrote an absolutely scintillating essay on the role that Gregor Strasser played in the uh, Nazi party in the 30s. He was taken out by the uh, Night of the Long Knives, but there was a while he could have been a rival for Hitler, but he was described as having a curious paladin complex. Okay. <laughs> I don't. Is, it, is, he, he, is he the Nazi you support? Yeah, he's, he's, yeah. My favorite, he's my favourite Nazi. Right, it's yeah. important to have a favourite. I think so. Goering's mine. <laughs> no, you, you don't want one that was around after the Night of the Long Knives, dear. I think that's when any good guys would have gone. <laughs> I don't think you can really like the Nazis if you insist on them being good guys. I think you have to relish the evil. Mm. <laughs> when I say like the Nazis, um, I'm, I'm talking ironically. I do not support fascism. <laughs> Yes. So what are your historical credentials, David? Oh, well, I've also got an A in A-level history. And then I've, I, I can raise that because I've got a poor uh, history degree as well. I have a 2-2 in history. No, isn't that... It's not fair that an A in your A-level got a ooh, <laughs> and a 2-2 in a degree got mm. Yeah. <laughs> That's wrong. OK, yeah. well, I, I feel that you, you are well qualified both of you much certainly much more than i am let let us commence we begin with a round i call what else in which i look at a famous person in history who i know one thing about and see if it's worth knowing any more this week can you smell burning yes it's joan of arc (laughs) (laughs) but that's all i know of her story how it ends so um what do you guys know about joan of arc the one thing i know is that she burnt at the stake. I think that most of my knowledge about her would come from the Smith's Big Mouth Strikes Again. She's name-checked in that. Is she? As the flames rose to her Roman nose and her Walkman started to melt. So I know, I know that Joan of Arc had a Walkman. That is... <laughs> um, what about you, David? There's a Simpsons episode where... <laughs> um, you know, where... Where Lee, you know, one of those vaguely historical Simpsons episodes in mm. which Lisa uh, represents <laughs> Joan of Arc um, and sort of hears voices and thinks that it's her saintly role to save France. Oh, OK. But, which is odd, really, because she's got a very strong American accent. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's good that you can learn history from The Simpsons. Yeah. <laughs> no, it is. I think, you know, this is where we gather these things from. Well, I think I, I knew she was burnt. Yes. Uh, that she was French. Oh, yes, I knew so, that. Which sort of makes the burnt less bad. <laughs> I bet that that armpit hair went up quickly. (laughs) 
Um, but, uh, and she was burnt, in fact, by the English. Oh, so the English. The yeah. thing that shocks me, and I can't work out, is that, I, judging by the films, she was quite a young girl, and yet she seemed to be leading the French army. It's as if, like, Great Britain went into war now and were led by Little Mix. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I really want to find out, is how a young girl gets to be the big figurehead. Dr Kate, how wrong or how right were we about Joan of Arc? You've got a lot right. Oh. Except she doesn't have a Walkman. (laughs) (laughs) So she was very religious, she did hear voices, she was very androgynous, she dressed as a man, so she was just What did they call her then? Was she sort of John of Arc? <laughs> well, she unveiled herself at the final moment. Did she... they sort of go, you're burning the stripper, Graham? <laughs> <laughs> I hate it when that happens. <laughs> um, how did she get involved, though, in the military? Th- you can't just turn up, can you, a, a gay, mean girl? We know, Frank, that's the amazing question, how she did it. So it is a bad time for the French. They weren't doing well. They'd pretty much been taken over by the English after Agincourt. And uh, Henry V had beaten Charles the Mad at Agincourt. And Henry V had the job of being king of everywhere. And then he died. And his son took over. So everyone was like, oh, he's just an infant. We can try and get the job back. So the French are feeling pretty tough. But they keep failing in battle. So Joan of Arc is this peasant girl who is born in 1412, and she hears these voices saying to her, go out and lead the troops. And normally you'd think, OK, well, I just heard some voices. But really the French were at such rock bottom that they were desperate for anything. So when she goes to the local duke and says, you know, I want to go and see the king, and I want to go and tell him I want to lead the troops, the local duke, rather than saying, go home, he goes, OK, let's do it. Really? Yeah, they were desperate, you know. I mean, Little Mix, if you've tried everything else, maybe Little Mix is your only option. (laughs) It's funny you should say that. (laughs) (laughs) So she's 17 when she sets off at the front of the troops, but she didn't last for very long. Can we we cut to the blaze? She was captured pretty quick. And this is where, it's pretty sad, she was let down by everyone. So David was saying she was burnt by the English, but actually she was burnt by the French and betrayed by the French, so... Boo hiss. So they imprisoned her, and then the poor thing tried to escape by jumping out of the window, 70-foot drop, and then they said, you've tried to commit suicide, so basically we've got to burn you. So they had this show trial. That's a great way of dealing with a potential suicide. (laughs) (laughs) They were so scared of her because she had this, this aura that she got burnt twice. She was burnt once, and then they stopped it when she was pretty much done for and said, look, here she is, she really was a real person. And then they completely burnt her to make sure she was ashes. Was she Double de- burn. She was dead after the first burning? Yes. OK. That's and French that- cooking for you. Yeah. <laughs> did she win any battles? She did win some battles, so basically, thanks to her, the people thought, oh, the king's good again. She's winning battles, He's, he could be strong. So all of us, I guess it's a lesson, if you meet a king who's fallen off his throne, don't say, I'll get it back for you, because you'll get it back for him, and then he'll dump you and get you burnt. And was, was she made... Is she a saint? Is she... she was made a saint. So 24 years after she died, there was a rehabilitation trial, because everyone felt very bad, and the guilty verdict was overturned, and they burnt the documents of the trial. But she wasn't made... There's a, a theme there, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> They burnt them, they're going, well, sorry, Joan, we can't bring you back, but we'll burn the documents. Well, I, th- I feel I've learnt loads about Joan of Arc, and uh, her record is not bad. Able to withstand big drops. <laughs> uh, but not, like all no these... ability to withstand fire, though. Well, yes. <laughs> which actually would, be, would have been yeah. useful to her. 
You think you, she was begging the executioners to chuck her off something? <laughs> Doesn't matter how high, do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God bless her. And now for a round called History Notes, in which we look at famous historical figures who appear on banknotes. This week, the great Victorian heroine Florence Nightingale pictured as she was on the £10 note holding a glowing lamp in a gloomy military hospital. It just goes to show that history depends on who's writing it. To us, she's a heroine. To moth historians, she's a mass murderer. (laughs) (laughs) What do you guys know about Florence Nightingale? You'd be quite annoyed if you've been a nurse and you've devoted yourself to saving lives. If the only thing that gives your nickname is what you happen to be carrying... So she could be the lifesaver or the really awesome nurse, but she's just the lady with a lamp. I once, many years ago, I stopped a kid getting hit by a car in the street, and I had just visited a Greg's the Baker's before. So if I was known by that kid as the man with the steak bake, <laughs> you'd feel a bit hard done by. It would sound like a reference to Joan of Arc. <laughs> the, the original steak bake. <laughs> Have you heard the story that she was the lover of Queen Victoria? (laughs) I'm serious, that's not a joke. I haven't heard that. Isn't that a story just based on the fact that they're the only two Victorian women anyone's ever heard of? (laughs) Some man has imagined them having sex. (laughs) Maybe. I could sort of Queen Victoria, you know, she went through a sort of, in her later years, she went through a sort of goth period. You can imagine. With a long period of mourning for the death of her husband. (laughs) You've basically turned into the Daily Mail website (laughs) for Victorian figureheads. So you haven't heard that story? I've never heard. What I I have heard about Florence Nightingale is that she was a nurse in this field hospital where they built it on a sewer or something and they said that can't have anything to do with everyone dying. And then, you know, gradually by sort of trial and error... And in this instance, error means the death of soldiers. Uh, she sort of improved the way nursing was done. But then in later life, when she was a sort of grand Victorian figure, she was sort of afflicted with depression and that sort of thing and spent ten years in bed on her own, sort of writing letters, telling people to clean out bedpans, whatever, you know, in general, spreading the word about not oh, building hospitals. The bed hospitals. was absolutely loaded with them by that stage. <laughs> oh, that's but, awful. So, um... I have a recording of Florence Nightingale. (laughs) I'm not making this up. This is a genuine recording of Florence Nightingale. And Florence Nightingale has done it. She died the first time, 1890. She was a a Highland Terrier. I was intrigued what emotion... It was quite exciting, the anticipation of knowing I was going to hear her voice for the first time in my life. I wasn't expecting to feel traumatised at the end of it. <laughs> no, but uh, that is, it's brilliant that it's her, though, isn't it? Yeah. I find it what, exciting. Do we know what she was saying? <laughs> I think she was saying, uh, can you empty this bed, Pat? No. Yeah. <laughs> if Queen Victoria calls, I'm not in. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dr Kate... Queen Victoria and Florence Nightingale. Can we start with that? Am I wrong? Of course you're wrong, Frank. No, no. I mean, Queen Victoria was asked to outlaw lesbianism and refused because she thought nothing so strange could ever exist. I think you're building my case. (laughs) Certainly. As David said, she was in bed from 1857, bed-bound, so it would have made it difficult for Queen Victoria to pop over. How long was she bed-bound? Well... 
essentially, she went to bed when she was 37. That was in 1857. And she lived till she was 90. So she was in bed for a long time. And David is quite right that she suffered from depression. I thought it was only 10 years. No, she was in bed for ages. So 37 to 90. So she lived a long time in bed. But she wasn't disabled. It was a choice. Well, she was ill. Uh, She suffered from depression throughout her life. David is quite right. She had these awful, awful bouts of depression. She was often suicidal. It was partly because... She was always telling herself that she was too clever and she should stop being so clever in company. And so that made her suicidal. And then in 1837, not long after she got back from the Crimea, she got an infection called brucellosis, which is probably picked up by unpasteurised milk. And that was it. Into bed she goes. But actually, while she was in bed, she was frenetically busy, just like any Victorian. She wrote lots of letters, bombarded everyone she could think of with letters about sewage and bedpans. She wrote books. She wrote notes on nursing and a feminist book called Cassandra that was so feminist it shocked Virginia Woolf. So she was ever so busy. So she was uh, from a rich family? A very rich family. And, you know, before her, Florence was a boy's name. And she was named because she was born in Florence. Unfortunately, her sister got born in Naples and got called Parthenope. Well, it could have been worse. It could have been Naples. Imagine the jokes at school about that. <laughs> but she was, you know, she was triumphant. She, she, at 16, she's a bit like Joan of Arc. She heard voices saying, go and be a nurse. Her mother fainted in shock because nursing was such a grotty occupation because they didn't have official nurses. They just had girlfriends and camp followers who did a bit of sorting out. So in the Crimea, four times as many soldiers were dying of typhoid than they were dying of battle wounds. So she did go with her, with her aunt and some nuns, this party of nurses, and she really did sort things out, hygiene, uh, fresh air, cleanliness. And she, she used to walk four miles every night checking on the men. They thought it was all about fresh air, didn't fresh they? Fresh air. For hundreds of years, they thought that, that disease was spread by s- nasty smells, which sort of <laughs> makes sense. You can imagine why they might think so. And it took ages for people to realise, no, it's, you know, unclean water is much more of a bad thing than the smell of a fart. <laughs> well, it's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful but sad story. I wish they'd had memory foam mattresses in those days, because now we'd know exactly what shape she was. <laughs> OK, this is a round I call Mozart's Grave, because despite all his success, Mozart ended up in a grave that I can only describe as, well, disappointing. It's a round about how the mighty fell. This week, Winston Churchill... How did Churchill, having won World War II with a mixture of hand gestures, oratory and cigar smoke, (laughs) go on to suffer such a massive defeat in the 1945 general election? This is something which I find utterly astonishing. Could you be a bigger national hero than Churchill was in 1945? Surely you'd have voted for him, wouldn't you, guys? Well, I hope not, because I think it was the fact that he didn't get in in 1945 was sort of brilliant. You know, I mean, um, uh, he did very well in the war and everything, but the government that got in... <laughs> like to, summary of Churchill. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the government that got in to replace him did a, almost a, as brilliant a job as the wartime government in terms of transforming the, the country after the war the and tra- having the nerve to really change things at a time when the country was sort of impoverished and sort of literally and metaphorically shell-shocked. But I suppose when it comes to being a national hero, you're better off being good at war than you are good at peace. Yeah, no, Which no, is yeah. why we all remember Churchill, but nobody really talks about Clement Attlee. You know, Churchill is a major hero. There is no nodding Clement Attlee selling insurance on the television. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I agree with you that that socialist government did a marvellous thing. But I just thought, I can't imagine not voting for Churchill because of his just super charisma. I heard, I don't know if this is true, that the thing that swung it against Churchill or against the Tories was the forces vote. That actually, if it, the domestic vote was very much, you know, would have returned the Tories and Churchill. But that when the votes came in from all the troops abroad, that was what swung it very much for the Labour Party. So it may be that the effect of Churchillian rhetoric and him as a sort of hero figure was sort of less felt by the troops actually fighting the Germans than it was on the home front. So they resented that they were doing the actual fighting and this bloke was getting on. Yeah, we will fight them on the beaches. I'd like to see you. (laughs) To be fair on Churchill, he was desperate to actually literally run at the Germans with a gun. He was a very brave man and he loved battle. He wanted to go over with the troops on D-Day and he had to be told by the king uh, that he's not allowed to. It's not appropriate for the head of the government to be in a boat with a cigar and a machine gun going, you know, I'm coming to get you Fritz. So he was a sort of early version of Ross Kemp. <laughs> In that he, he would have been happy to fight if he could have yeah. done, but as it is, he just does documentaries. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bit like in Doctor Who. You know, in Doctor Who, when they, need, when they need a war doctor, so John Hurt's the war doctor. Yes, the war prime minister. Yeah. yeah. I think that one of the reasons he might have lost was the cigars thing. And I think that people put up with the cigars when there was a lot of smoke about anyway during the war. (laughs) And then when the smoke cleared in 1945, um, suddenly it wasn't so funny anymore. He was revealed as a pollutant. (laughs) Exactly. That's that's my view. I actually knew, this is not a joke, I knew uh, a woman who was his pastry chef in his later years. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, occasionally, after a couple of sherries, she would tell some stories about Churchill. And she told me that towards the end, um, the last three or four years of his life, he would get up in the morning, he'd walk through the kitchen wearing just a vest. And he would walk into the garden and urinate, and then he'd go back up and get dressed. The thing is, he could, he, he's such a brilliant speaker. If he announced that to the household, he could still make that sound an awesome thing to do. It will. I'm just off to slash in the garden. <laughs> it wouldn't be when the golden rivulets of this country <laughs> draining to our rich and immortal soil. It would all be like that. And we'd be incredibly yeah. moved by it. Yeah. So anyway... It reminds me of when Susan Boyle lost to diversity <laughs> in the final of Britain. You couldn't believe that the obvious best talent had come second. Um, Dr Kate, how did he lose the 1945 election? Well, it was a shock to everyone. So basically, they had the election in July. The government was dissolved in May, just a few weeks after V-Day. And in May, his approval rating was at 83%. Wow. And yet he didn't get in. It was this landslide victory for, for Labour. But, you know, what you were all saying was so true, because there were two aspects of it, really. Number one, people thought of him as the war prime minister. They thought he was the one to lead us through war, and now we need something else. And also... He was such a maverick. He was such a lone maverick. He hadn't really fostered his party. So his backbenchers kept saying, yeah, we've got no idea what Churchill wants to do. He just does his own kind of thing, and we're completely lost. So he hadn't really won them over. No one really thought he was particularly conservative. So it was, they thought, OK, he's the chap to lead us through war. He's the guy. But when it comes to peace and reconstruction... He's not the guy, because he'd really neglected domestic issues throughout the war, and particularly what he neglected is the idea of reconstruction. And the Beveridge report, the famous Beveridge report, saying we need an NHS, we need social security, we need full employment. 
he'd gone, well, you know, it's okay. And in private, he called Beveridge a windbag. But he just pretty much dismissed it. And this was a real kind of thing for Labour to whiz in. So they championed Beveridge. They said, we're going to reconstruct the country. So when it came down to it, Labour was just offering a much better deal. Okay. Also, you know what? He was, oh, God, I he thought we finished. He, was a bed, he, was a, he, wo- he worked in bed as well. Him and Florence, they had so much in common. He loved working in bed. So basically every morning he'd smoked a load and then got into bed and did loads of work. This is where I've been going wrong. I've I know. been getting up. Yeah. <laughs> and so now we come to the round I call Not All Bad, in which we look at incredibly evil characters from history and see if they had a nice side. <laughs> <laughs> this week, Attila the Hon. First of all, why didn't he go for a more impressive nickname? I mean, you know where you are with the Terribles and the Impalers, but the Hon is rubbish. It suggests that the country of origin is the be-all and end-all. It's a sort of UKIP nickname. <laughs> Do you know anything at all about Attila the Hon? Virtually nothing, yeah. actually. When you go this far back, you know, because you know a bit about Churchill, but when you yeah. go this far back, it really is a different planet, isn't it? Yeah, I don't even know when Attila the Hun lived. I think he's around about 400, I think. I get him mixed up with Genghis Khan and Conan the Barbarian. (laughs) (laughs) Don't we get our nickname for the Germans, the pejorative nickname the Hun? It was something like Kaiser Wilhelm. It's not short for honey, is it? No, it wasn't (laughs) wasn't a term of endearment. Attila the Honey. (laughs) (laughs) He was all right. It's, it's messy. I mean, we, we need you, Dr. Kate. Was he all bad or had he got any nice bits? Got a few nice bits. So Steve was pretty right. He was about 400, so he was born in 406. So well done, close. Steve. And died 453, uh, drowned in his own blood, which we think was probably Whoa. a nosebleed. <laughs> <laughs> I was just about to celebrate his warrior's death. He was asleep. Oh. He died in his sleep of a nosebleed. Someone should have put him in the recovery position. Yes, they should have held it tight like that. This should have been called famous historical figures in bed. (laughs) (laughs) It's good that he was in his fix, otherwise he'd have just been there going, has anyone got some tissue? That would be his his last word. It's terrible, and he wasn't that old, did you say? He wasn't that old. No, so he he was about 47, which is pretty old, actually, for those days. And So it's pretty shameful for him, this great warrior, to die in his bed of a nosebleed. Well, who was... Can you give us a general picture of him, then? So Attila, he was this ruler. He was the ruler of the Hunnic Empire, which was huge, which covered Russia, Poland, Slovakia, Persia, Iran, right to Germany, and it was right down to the Balkans. And what he basically did was he's the scourge of the Roman Empire. He basically spends the whole time having a go at the Romans. He he just loves it. You know, he basically beats them up as much as he can. But he's pretty honourable, because you know what he does is he doesn't do what the Vikings and Napoleon and the Vikings do completely different. So basically he goes and beats people up and says, if you give me some money, I'll stop beating you up. And they give him some money and he, he goes That's away. That caught on, didn't it? <laughs> but actually Attila, when you give him some money, he goes, OK, I'll stop. But the Vikings just came back and Napoleon just ignored it. So he was quite honourable, but you mustn't double-cross him. You mustn't put some stones in the bag of gold, otherwise he'd come back with a vengeance. He was super tough. Okay. And he was a byword for savagery, but he was actually very romantic. So a lot of his campaigns were for a lady, the sister of the Roman emperor. Uh, She wrote to him saying, I don't want to get married to this really boring senator. And he said, that is a come on. Yeah, she wants me. So as a consequence... This is not a direct quote, Kate, is it? (laughs) 
He said, that's, that's a come on. She wants me. I'm going to go and get her. And he said, OK, uh, Emperor, uh, if I marry your sister, could I have basically the whole of the Roman Empire as a dowry? And I'll go and get it for myself, thanks. So he went off conquering it. And uh, she didn't really want it. So he, they, he, they accepted the deal? Uh, no, no, wow. he never got her. But the, he did get large sections of the Roman yeah. Empire. Yeah, so yeah, instead, instead. So, you know, he had a broken heart. He was an honourable man. Had he met this love. woman he was in love with? No, no. <laughs> well, the broken heart's a bit tentative, isn't it? <laughs> and he was a very he humble... Had a broken nose. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. He was very humble. He was very humble. You'd go was he? Yeah, he was. Attila the Hun. He was the humble Hun. You'd go and see him at the barbarian gates and everyone beating off gold and silver. And he would have a very humble wooden cup and um, he would wear very humble clothes. But actually, that was the way he tricked people because everyone's like, oh, he looks like a peasant. I don't think I'm going to bother with him. And he turns around and beats people up and it yeah. wins everything and tries to get the Emperor's sister. <laughs> and then Joan of Arc. Yeah, exactly. No, it's Attila the Hun. I'm sorry, I know him anyway. <laughs> You're making this sound a bit like a romantic comedy that you're pitching. He was a humble man with a propensity to nosebleeds. <laughs> she was the sister of the Roman Empire. All he wanted was the Roman Empire, a wooden cup, and the empresses <laughs> to have sex with. <laughs> That's it's what a... Hollywood needs, isn't it? Hon com. <laughs> <laughs> and, and also, Steve was right. Um, it was in the First World War that the Hun came to be used as German, so Wilhelm II said, let's fight like the Hun... And, yeah, we use the Hun as a, as a term of mockery, just as David was saying, so you're quite right. Well, that's sensational. Uh, obviously, I've learned something about Attila the Hun because I didn't know who he was. <laughs> <laughs> I um, think I didn't know one thing about Attila the Hun. No. Except I knew that he wasn't Genghis Khan. <laughs> no, I, I didn't even know that. <laughs> by, by the way, he was much later. He died in 1227, so you're right that he was later. So yeah. you knew all the facts. It was all there. And Conan, Conan the Barbarian, when did he? I don't think he existed. Didn't, 1982, thank you, son. <laughs> I'll, I'll go on and my knowledge where I can get it, thank you very much. <laughs> well, time's up here, end of the lesson. David and Steve, did you, did, what will stay in your mind, do you think, of what you learnt tonight? Uh, I think the shrieking voice of Florence Nightingale will <laughs> visit me in my nightmares. <laughs> yes. And knowing that she recorded that from her bed as well. Shall we, shall we have a bit more, Florence? Yeah. <laughs> get, get down! <laughs> get. <laughs> Can you imagine if that was your nurse as well? What about you, David? Have you learnt anything tonight? I, I've learnt... I mean, I know infinitely more about Attila the Hun. <laughs> yes. And I didn't realise he was such a romantic. <laughs> you know, and I think, in many ways, I think Attila the Hun should be a tremendous role model for defenders of domestic violence everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I think he could be a nice atheist replacement for St Valentine. <laughs> He's so romantic. We can have a Tiller the Hon card. Yeah. <laughs> Will you be my Tiller? Instead of a heart, just a drawing of a bloody yeah. nose. <laughs> <laughs> OK, well, thanks, Dr Kate Williams and our guests, David Mitchell and Steve Hall. And thank you for listening. And the rest, as they say... <laughs> the Rest is History was hosted by Frank Skinner with Dr Kate Williams. The guests were David Mitchell and Steve Hall, and the producers were Justin Pollard and Dan Schreiber. This was an Avalon production for BBC Radio 4.